You're very kind. Matt uh, is not feeling well, and uh, I was asked to step in, and I'm very honored to be able to open the Word of God to you this morning, and uh, thank you for the opportunity on the part of the leadership to allow me to do this. In 1774, the Constitutional Convention was beginning in Philadelphia. It was a warm September day. Maybe you've been there. In Carpenter's Hall, all the leading lights of liberty were there gathered, and the fate of our fledgling nation was literally at stake. Could these men come together and form a durable form of government? As they were about to deliberate, the Honorable Mr. Cushing from Massachusetts made what he thought was a rather benign motion. He moved that the convention be opened with prayer. But the motion was met with some rather vociferous opposition. There was such a diversity of denominations present. There were the Quakers, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, and those suspicious Episcopalians. Could they all share in a common act of worship? Interestingly, Sam Adams, the Congregationalist, and you know him, one of the fiery sons of liberty, stood up and he said this, I am no bigot. I can hear a prayer from any gentleman of piety and virtue who was a friend to our country. Then Adams mentioned a local Episcopalian minister who had a distinguished patriotic reputation. His name was Reverend Jacob Duchesne. It proves that when you're under attack, you will basically take aid and comfort from anywhere you can get it, even if it's from the Episcopalians. The motion passed, and he was invited to come the next day to lead the prayer service. Now, as a proper Episcopalian priest, what would he do? He would pray from the common book of prayer. And being dutiful to his uh, office, true to form, he showed up with his common book of prayer, And he read the particular psalm that was assigned to the seventh day of the month, the 35th psalm, which we will be looking at today. Now, it's important to remember the day before, all of the uh, delegates to the Constitutional Convention had been told of a withering bombardment by the British onto the city of Boston. This was rather scary times. It was important to imagine us being there. Remember, stretched out before them is all of the horrors of war, and a protracted one at that. And just by being there as a delegate to that convention, they were considered traitors. Indeed, their life, their fortune, their sacred honor could be fully expected of them. Then in God's ironic providence, what does he do? He brings a minister from the Church of England, an Episcopalian, to lead the prayer service by reading Psalm 35. 
John Adams, who later became the president of the United States, wrote a letter to his wife, Abigail, and said, I have never seen a greater effect upon an audience. It seemed as if heaven had ordained that psalm to be read that morning. And after reading Psalm 35, they began a season of prayer. They fervently prayed for America, for Congress, and especially for Boston. John Adams further records, after this, Reverend Duchesne broke out in extemporaneous prayer, which is uncommon for an Episcopalian, but it filled the bosom of every man present. It was enough to melt a heart of stone. I even saw tears gush from the eyes of those old grave Pacific Quakers of Philadelphia. Not bad for an Episcopalian, right? This inspired Psalm of David effectively became America's first prayer. It was the first official prayer of a fledgling republic as it labored to create a constitution that would eventually become the vanguard of Christian liberty throughout the world. We're going to be looking at that today. What was the Spirit then saying through this psalm? What was it saying to David and through David? And what is it saying to us today? How do we find from this text the comfort that God offers his people? And so what we're going to look at today is God's promise of comfort to his people because of his loyalty to his king. And who is God's king? Jesus, right? So yes, it extends to David, but we always have to remember whenever we're reading the scriptures, who does it bear witness of? bears witness of Christ. So we'll be looking at that today. We're not going to look at the whole psalm. We're just going to look at the first 10 verses. There's actually three sections of that psalm that repeat. There's three sections that begin with a cry for deliverance, affirms the certainty of God's intervention, and then ends with a vow of thanksgiving. And then, just as a reminder, the immediate context, what was going on? What was in David's life that precipitated this psalm? He was, at that point, fleeing for his life from King Saul. You know the story of Saul, the first king of Israel, whom God had rejected and had raised up David to be his replacement. And now David is fleeing from Saul uh, and from his persecution. So let's look at this text today and ask the question, what does this say to us? What do we find for our souls here today? Well, the first thing I want you to see is God is your help and comfort. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 as we pray for God's intervention. Verses 1, plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Father, now as we turn to your holy word, we ask that you would come and speak to our hearts today. Lord, uh, bring comfort to those who need it. Bring strength to those who need it. Bring conviction to those who need it. And Lord, may your voice be heard today as we look to your holy word. Amen. Amen. So David prays, kind of an interesting prayer, he prays that God will take up arms, put on his shield, strap on 
the sword and, and fight against David's enemies and defeat those who hurt him. Pretty militant prayer, if you ask me. David appeals to the Lord as the same Lord who had delivered his people from Egypt and had destroyed the entire army of Pharaoh. Maybe you remember that story where Moses and the children of Israel were led out. And what do we eventually find them doing? We see them on the, on the shores of the Red Sea. And what are they doing? They're rejoicing over the corpses of the Egyptian army that God had destroyed. And what do they sing in Exodus 15? He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is the Lord of Scripture, isn't it? David had no powerful army, though, did he? He had no real fighting force. All he had was really a rag tag band of the disgruntled and, and disenfranchised of Israel. And so David is outmanned, he's outgunned, so what does he do? He prays that God would intervene to stop his enemies. Now Jesus, who is the greater David, right, the greater king, how did he pray when he was surrounded by his enemies? Remember on the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels. A legion of angels could have come to vindicate him. But what does he do? Rather, Jesus cries out to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. By the way, a reference to another psalm, Psalm 31, verse 5. So our king, King Jesus, just like King David, trusted the Father to be his ultimate defense. This is a prayer you can, and I believe you should pray in the midst of your spiritual battles. I think it's only right that we pray that God frustrates the plans of his enemies. But how does God do that? He does it two ways, basically. He does it by the sword of his justice and the ministers of his justice, the civil magistrate. And he does it by the cross and the minister of the grace, the ministry of grace. See, God subdues his enemies. Remember, you were once his enemy. And how did he subdue you? By his grace. He made you who were once his enemy, now his child. Wouldn't that be wonderful? When you're praying, when people are coming against you, pray that God would show them the same mercy that he showed you, and make them who may at this point be their enemies into his child. Romans 12 verse 19 puts it this way, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says who? Says the Lord. So we can pray, but we need to pray correctly. Notice Dave, David goes on further and he said, we need to pray for more than just deliverance from our enemies. We need to pray for God's comfort. Look what it says in the second half of verse 3. He's speaking, this is David speaking to God, say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. 
It was not enough for David that God would come in and intervene and rescue him from his circumstances. David asked God for something more. He wanted inward spiritual comfort. Speak to my soul. See, trials and persecution, they're not just a matter of of simple circumstances and natural fear. What does it do? It exposes who we are. Trials and persecutions are a very spiritual thing, and it exposes whether or not we truly trust in the Lord or we don't. David appeals to God not just to be the Savior from his outward troubles, but that he would make himself known to him in his soul, that he would have inner peace, inner inner victory in his heart. And having received that, he could face any adversity, any trial, any persecution. He needed what the Apostle Paul calls the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Look at this in Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, The Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit Himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children then heirs and heirs of God and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. If Christ by His Spirit, bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God, what else do you need? It's enough. It's sufficient. You don't need anything else to make you happy or to make you secure. His comfort is your support. No matter who your enemy is, as Paul would say later, if God be for me, what? Who can be against me? Does it really matter? Let me ask you this morning. Do you have that? Do you have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit that you are the child of God? The Bible says when you do, you cry out from your heart, Abba, Father. Do you just know about God, the man upstairs, as some people will refer to him? Or do you know him intimately as your loving, heavenly Father? You can only know that by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, we are saved not by having certain feelings, though, because even if I don't feel it, I'm still saved because of God's grace. God promises to save me, and I'm saved not on the basis of whether I feel things or not. I'm saved because God has promised to save all whosoever believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that you have. But Although that's objectively true, all whosoever believe are believers and are saved, they're still in need to experience that, right? We have the objective promises of God, but we have this subjective experience of God speaking to our own heart. And it's, those are not in opposition to each other. We hold on to both of them. See, it's not enough just to know about God. We need to experience Him. So Jesus had this to the fullest, didn't he? See, how could Jesus face everything that he faced, all of the opposition that he faced, human and satanic? It's because he was assured of his Father's love. Remember, God spoke out of heaven, this is my beloved Son. 
in who I'm well pleased. If you have that kind of assurance in your heart, you can face anything. And let me tell you, that assurance is available to all who are in Christ today. God's love is on all who are in Him. Ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, speak to my soul. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Then David moves into another uh, (laughs) troubling, for some, portion of this prayer. Uh, And we're going to look at it. Some people are find this awkward, but it's an explicit prayer that God will judge his enemies. Let's just read it and let it speak for itself. Verse 4, let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery, and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause, they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. This part of uh, the psalm, there's a fancy word for it. It's called imprecatory psalms or a psalm of imprecation. What does that mean? Well, in the Bible, there's two different things. There's blessings and what? Cursings. This is a a prayer that God would curse or judge his enemies. And some people say, well, David must have been really in the flesh when he wrote this. He must have been way out of bounds. This certainly cannot be right or good or true. And I would say, oh, contraire, my friend. All Scripture is inspired by by God. Hmm. So David, by the Spirit, is not ranting here. He is being moved by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, David wasn't really given to this. Remember his, David's character. Before David was king, remember a number of times God put Saul right in his hands, right? Where he could have taken vengeance and taken matters into his own hands. But what did David do? He refuses to touch the Lord's anointed. Then later... He becomes king, and when you're king in the ancient Near East, you had the power of life and death. He had all the power to do whatever he wanted with anybody he determined to do whatever he wanted to do with. In 2 Samuel 16, you remember David's fleeing out of Jerusalem, and one of Saul's household, all right, one of Saul's distant relatives, Shimei, comes up as David's fleeing, (laughs) and starts throwing rocks at the king and cursing him. And what does David do? Let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him. David does not take matters into his own hands. So we can't suppose that this passage here is some expression of a a ranting, selfish, carnal person. David was inspired and spoke by the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of Christ was in David doing what? Revealing beforehand the just judgments of God and the inevitable wrath to come upon all of God's enemies for their wickedness, their malice, their cruelty, and their treachery. As for Saul, David knew that God had rejected him. In fact, God had even forgiven or, or, or had 
forbidden Samuel, the prophet, to even grieve for Saul. Saul was going down. God had declared it. David knew that. Even Samuel knew that. But these inspired predictions looked past Saul and described the doom of all the enemies of Christ. And though God's enemies might prevail for a period, and sometimes we look around in the world and we say, how long, O Lord, are the wicked going to prosper, right? Yet we know that God foresees, and we see it in this text, their ultimate ruin. Look at what it says in verses 5 and following. The wicked are utterly unable to stand before the judgments of God. Notice what it says. They shall be like chaff as before the wind. And chaff is just the little light, it's lighter than air practically, fluff that is discarded from the harvest. And notice verse 6, their way, the way of the wicked, will always be dark and slippery. The path of sinners is always fraught with continual danger. What's the danger? It's the constant danger of falling further into their sin, and we know where that can end up in every kind of evil thing, even death itself. But all sinners, all those who are the enemies of God, when you think about it, are on a very slippery slope. We are literally, everyone in this room, one heartbeat away from eternity. And if you're lost, you don't know Christ, that means you're one heartbeat away from hell. So unless God grants them repentance, their feet will slide, and they will slide in due time. But this isn't the worst of it as the psalm goes on. It even gets worse. You know, even chaff, when it's blowing around, can find a place to rest. Even if you're on a path that's dark and slippery, sometimes there's a little place to sit down and rest. But that's not available, according to the Scriptures, in verse 5 and in verse 6. Notice what it says, that the angel of the Lord shall pursue them. The angel of the Lord shall pursue them. See, they find no rest, day or night. And if, it, if you're like me or, or were like me, even when I was running from the Lord, God was speaking to me in my dreams. I couldn't find any rest. I knew I was, I was wrong and I needed Christ. But the Bible says here there's an avenging angel of God which will pursue them. And they can't escape. They can't escape the pit of destruction. Just as the angel of the Lord encamps around God's people, the angel of the Lord encamps against God's enemies, according to this scripture. Just as the angels of the Lord in the New Testament are said to be ministers of His grace to His people, here it says that the angels of the Lord are the ministers of God's justice to the ungodly. Those that then that dare to make God their enemy also make the whole host of heaven their enemies too. Are you following me here? Happy Mother's Day, by the way. And not only that, God will judge his particular enemies. Notice what it says, verse 8. And let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. Now David is specifically praying about Saul. And let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction 
let him fall. So David prays against his one enemy that destruction would come upon Saul. Now remember, Saul had repeatedly laid snares for David, trying to get David whacked. And uh, this prayer is, Lord, in your poetic justice, why don't you let what they're trying to do to me happen to them? And that's how David prays. And he knew that the Lord would smite Saul. So in verse 7, we say, For without a cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without a cause for my life. What's ironic, if you know the, the end of the story of Saul, is how that God's justice gets meted out. Remember, Saul plotted to have David killed by the Philistines. Look in 1 Samuel 18. And Samuel, excuse me, and Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delighted in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. Wow. Then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. And notice what the text says. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So this net which Saul was setting for David under the pretense of doing him honor was actually the net in which Saul himself fell because you know at the end of Saul's life he is killed, unfortunately, even with his son Jonathan at the hands of the Philistines. Just a point of reference. Let God distribute his justice. He is much better at it than you are. Now remember Christ, if there was anybody that was unjustly pursued, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. He was pursued by the devil and all of his children for his whole life, starting from his infancy with Herod all the way to the end with Pilate, even including the scribes and the Pharisees. Yet, had Satan and even all of his pawns and all of his children known that it was the cross that would become the instrument of their own demise, they would have never crucified the Lord. In fact, that's what it says, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians 2.8, None of the rulers of this age knew the wisdom of God, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't it great? God even caused Satan to fall by his own hands into the net that he laid for Christ. So that's good news. Everyone smile at me. It's still Mother's Day. So what do we do? If this is true, if we serve a God who brings vengeance and justice for his people, what are we supposed to do? We are to rejoice. Our proper response then is to rejoice in the Lord, verse 9 and 10. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. So David now reflects on the certainty of his deliverance. Has it come yet? No. He's waiting for it, but by faith, he's committed his case to God, and he did not stagger at the promises of God. And he believed that God would be his comfort and his deliverance. 
Notice what David doesn't say, though, and I think this is important. David doesn't say, my soul shall be joyful in my ease and safety. What does it say? Rather, my soul shall be joyful where? In the Lord. In the Lord. That's the covenant name, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord of the covenant. David rejoiced in the favor of God and in his promised salvation. See, that's the only true and lasting source of true joy. You don't have to have external peace and deliverance and safety in order to have the joy of the Lord. Those of you, many of you have been ministering and serving the Lord for decades, and you've come through some heartaches, and you've come through some trials. If you will, to use the, the imagery of the psalm, you're sowing with tears. You're planting with tears. What's the promise of God? Do not sorrow. Do not despair. The Lord is your joy. He is your strength. And there will be one day as you remain faithful to Jesus when He's going to say, enter in to my joy forever and ever. Are you looking forward to that day? The Lord is your ultimate source of joy. And what will happen? Your worship will be heartfelt. This is one of the fav my favorite verses because it's so descriptive. Verse 10, look at what it says. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is strong, too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. David vows that God is going to get all the glory and all that is within him, even the very marrow of his bones, will worship his Savior. Why? Because David knows there's no one like the Lord. He is peerless. He is altogether holy. He is altogether awesome. And David knows that Jehovah lives an unparalleled perfection. No words can express how fully awesome and holy is our God. We can only praise Him by acknowledging, Lord, who is like you? You're beyond description. Our mere words, our puny understanding is so limited. You're all that we could ever imagine and even more. Lord, who is like unto thee? David knew God is not the patron of those who resist and oppress and kill the innocent. God is perfect in all of his ways. He is holy and just. Yes, he's loving and kind and faithful to his king and to his people. Even your bones, which God wondrously has created and preserves and sustains, and one day we wait, our bones are waiting for that glorious day of resurrection. If your bones could speak, you know what they'd say? Lord, who is like? unto thee. So let me conclude today with some application. What does this mean for us today here? Well, first, God will hear your cry for deliverance today. Why? Because Christ is your great avenger. Christ 
has avenged you by absorbing the just demands of a holy God on your behalf. God's own justice was fully satisfied by Christ's shed blood. God avenged you of all your spiritual enemies, even death and hell and the grave. And he came to destroy all the works of the devil. We were once held captive by a three-headed hydra, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And you were utterly unable to rescue yourself. In fact, you were so lost and you were so confused that you loved your captivity. You polished your spiritual handcuffs and you, re- you relished your shameful estate. And though sin victimizes and damns, by nature, we defend it and justify it. But then Christ came. Christ came and avenged you. And God graciously sent His Son to come and liberate you and set you free. A greater Moses has come to lead you out of slavery into the liberty of the gospel of grace. As Paul would say in Galatians 5, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So the question is this morning, have you been liberated by Christ? Do you know the forgiveness of sin? If you don't, please don't leave this place today not knowing that, because you can know God's grace and forgiveness and mercy. God heard the prayer of David and delivered him from the unrighteous acts of Saul. God heard the prayer of his only son and avenged his king from death by raising him from the dead and now seating Christ at his own right hand and have given him a name that is above every name. Even our founders prayed this prayer, Psalm 35, and found deliverance from a tyrannical king. Do you need deliverance today? Are you suffering unjustly? Is it from a natural enemy or maybe even some kind of spiritual adversary? I want to encourage you today. God still answers this prayer for deliverance. Maybe you've you've forfeited your liberty. Maybe you've backslidden. Maybe you're compromised. And now you've kind of been sucked back into the world or maybe some deeds of the flesh. Pray for deliverance today. Ask God to come and liberate you. And He will by His Spirit. And if you have done that, you will join with the psalmist and say, All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like thee, who deliverest the poor from him that is too strong for him? Let's pray.